Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Big data and data science are terms we hear more and more these days. Data sets are getting larger, analysis techniques more sophisticated. And the idea that we can use these vast amounts of information to understand and analyse phenomena, to find solutions to problems, is gaining prominence both in business and academia. Well, my guest today is at the forefront of big data in healthcare. Although, as she points out, big data and data science are just the terms we use nowadays. Because what science could there possibly be without data? Cathy Sudlow is Professor of Neurology and Clinical Epidemiology at the University of Edinburgh. For more than a decade, she's supported and enabled large-scale population health research and has spent much of her time working with a number of organisations, like UK Biobank, one of the largest and most in-depth biomedical databases in the world, and Health Data Research UK, improving researchers' access to the population's health records. Cathy spent her school years in Edinburgh before studying medicine and later specialising in both neurology and epidemiology. She believes that there's no room for prima donnas in science. It should always be an open and collaborative process, often bringing together researchers from across different disciplines, she says. Cathy Sadlow, welcome to The Life Scientific. Hi, thank you. As I mentioned in the intro there, you say there's no room for prima donnas in science. What did you mean by that? Well, particularly in my area of science, the life sciences and biomedical science, there's a, an intense sense of competition, which is sort of okay on one level. I mean, the race to discover things or whatever. Sure. But I think often it prevents us from working together in teams and collaborating. And there are certain things that scientists tend to get a bit obsessed by in my field. Like, you know, what order you appear in the authorship list of a publication with not, many not just people your on field, it, for Kathy, example. Oh. <laughs> uh, or, um, you know, how many accolades and titles you have after your name, those types of things, which to me just constitute a monumental distraction. So I just mm. think we, we should dispense with the recognition stuff and focus on the outputs much more right. than we currently do. Right. And what motivates you more in your work? Is it dealing directly with patients or is it working with the data, the health data? So it's always been a mixture of both. What drives me is, I think, ultimately wanting to influence the lives of patients and the population at large for the better. And sometimes I've been able to do that through individual one-to-one -one interactions with patients. I hope much of the time, actually. Uh, but sometimes one can influence many more people, thousands, tens of thousands, or even potentially millions, by being involved with working on the data that's generated mm. about and by those people mm. and deriving insights from them. So it, it's very much been a mixture of both, the one motivating the other and, and back and forward between the two. Well, Cathy Sadler, let's go back to the beginning. You were born in Sheffield, but grew up in Edinburgh. Happy childhood memories? 
Yes, very much so. I had a pretty privileged childhood. I didn't want for much. I had lots of opportunities. I went to a bit of a pressure pot sort of boiler school, priding itself on girls being interested in science and and medicine and so on. So because I was good at those types of things, I think I was pushed in that direction, but it, it suited me. I was probably quite achievement orientated, a bit anxious about doing well. Influence of parents? Um, yeah, I mean, I never, f- I don't think they ever put me explicitly under pressure. I think a lot mm. of it came from, or felt like it came from within me. I mean, probably genetic influence from parents and other things. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you do come from a family of medics, your parents, your Indeed. brother. <laughs> I, that is bound to, like everything else, bound to be a mixture of genetics and environment. Yeah, there are lots of, <laughs> lots of medicine in my family, grandfather, uncle, both parents, my brother and and my husband and many others besides. So there's a lot of medicine and a lot of medical and clinical Mm. and population-based science in my life. Was it inevitable that you were going to go and study medicine then? Not completely, no. I think I, I fought quite hard against it within myself because I thought it was really important to think about all the options. And I was encouraged by others around me at school to think broadly about other options as well so actually as I was coming to the end of school and I was good at quite a lot of things but particularly doing well in maths and some Mm. of the sciences I was quite keen on a career in geology and I certainly thought I would go and read natural sciences but in the end actually after I'd applied to read sciences I, I changed my mind I spoke to a few people and I thought do you know I'm sort of trying to do this because I think I should rather Mm. than because it's what I really, really want to do. And there's so much variety in a career in medicine. Well, you you split your six years studying medicine between Cambridge and Oxford. Is it naughty of me to ask which place did you enjoy your time at more? Well, I think I enjoyed Oxford more. I think that was because I was more grown up by then. So that was the the fourth. That was that was the that was the second half. Yeah. So Mm. three years in Cambridge, where you know I was. 17 or 18 when I when I started I was still growing up I was getting used to being Mm. away from home I didn't have a year off before I started so it was really fun it was very intense I have very fond memories of my time at Cambridge but I think I was in Oxford it was more about being the medical coalface we were in the hospital we were part of the team we were helping to look after the patients it felt very real Mm. Um, and I think yeah I was just better equipped to Mm. handle it by then as well and did you see yourself going into medical research at that point or was it more that you're going to you know become a clinician yeah and I think at that stage I wasn't particularly orientated to a career in research there were lots of people it felt anyway who'd already decided very early on I'm going to be a neurosurgeon and I'm going to do this sort of research I'm right going to I'm be, going to find the cure oh, for cancer they, or... <laughs> yeah they either had a real kind of research drive or they knew exactly which area of mm. medicine they wanted to practice in I really didn't you didn't did you no I was going to say because after you qualified as a doctor and and you moved around different specialties at what point did you figure out what area you wanted to specialize in It wasn't until I was about three years or two and a half years in, I was doing a job in neurology. Neurology as a medical student before I graduated had been a somewhat recherche specialty. Uh, Neurologists were sort of boffins who looked after rare disorders Mm. that that were often named after famous people. And if you couldn't remember the name of the famous person, (laughs) then that was somehow considered a failing. So I found it kind of moderately interesting, but I wasn't totally into it. But neurology in Edinburgh at the time, which is where I was doing this job, was about more common disorders. There was a strong emphasis on 
things that affected lots of people, like stroke in particular. And there was also a strong emphasis on what became known as evidence-based medicine. So randomised trials to work out which treatments really worked well for different types of people and large-scale observational studies as well. Mm. Um, So it was the mixture of epidemiology, trials and stroke and neurology, which together, I think, at that stage started to drive my direction forward. In a particular direction. After that, that, that time in Edinburgh, you took some time off. Well, kind of. Other people take time off to go travelling to see the world. You went travelling to visit different research groups around the world to collect medical data. I mean, that's dedication? <laughs> yeah, well, also fun. So I, I'd fixed to do a job after I'd finished a couple of years of working in Edinburgh. So I had a three-month break. And I can't quite remember how that arose, but it was very convenient wrote to many people around Europe and around the world with the help of colleagues who had contacts and networks and so on said can I come and visit you you've done this study and I want to try and collect the data from these studies that are all broadly similar in a standard format so that we can make comparisons about the incidence of stroke in different parts of the world so I was I was very keen to do it I met a lot of really interesting and brilliant people I saw lots of different parts of the world so, yeah, it had a massive effect on me. And I also, you know, missed a couple of flights and trains, so I learned a little bit more about how to organise my time <laughs> and travel time. to boot. <laughs> well, when you got back from, from your, your travelling, uh, you worked as a neurologist for a while, but in 1996 you decided to go back to your studies and do a master's degree in London in epidemiology. What was it that attracted you to that particular course? The London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene was known to be or purported to be one of the two best places in the world at that stage for teaching epidemiology at master's level. I wanted to get a proper training and it was the right place to go. And that was the stepping stone for you to then go back to Oxford to do your PhD. Yes. What, What was your PhD on? Uh, It was on gathering together data from multiple randomised trials that were testing whether aspirin or other antiplatelet drugs like aspirin were helpful and to what extent in a range of different disorders affecting the heart and circulation. So heart attacks, strokes, heart failure, angina and a range Mm. of other disorders besides. So at the time, uh, it was the largest such meta-analysis, that's pool data analysis of lots of different randomised trials that had ever been done. So it was brilliant to be involved in coordinating and running analyses for that project. What came out of it then? I mean, we, we hear about aspirin, the use of aspirin for blood pressure, for example. What was it that was the big takeaway from your research? Yeah, so we were able to show across a very broad range of disorders. Again, it was a huge collaborative project with people contributing data from all over the world that around about a quarter of all deaths and subsequent recurrent episodes of disastrous things like stroke and heart attack could be prevented by using aspirin or aspirin-like combinations of medications in people who were already at high risk, usually because they'd already had some sort of event and had survived it. We also showed in people who presented acutely with having just had a bad stroke or a bad heart attack that there was a substantial benefit um, as well. So short-term benefits and long-term benefits. And was that around about the point where you realised how effective it is to pool together data from different areas? Yeah, absolutely. 
if you're looking for those kind of modest size effects, then you need to randomise, you need to allocate people at chance in experiments to see whether the medicine works or not. But you also need very large numbers to overcome all the kind of background noise that you get in those types of studies. Right. Well, in 2001, you went back to Edinburgh. This time you settled there. What drew you back then to the place where you'd grown up? I think it was mostly to do with work that I'd done up there. That's where I'd worked and where I discovered neurology and stroke and where I first discovered epidemiology and randomised trials and uh, big data. It wasn't called that at the time. So I wanted to go back there to carry on my research. And also I wanted to get back into working clinically. I was missing being a doctor. So I wanted to go for this combination, 50-50 combination for a bit of the two. Well, throughout the early 2000s, Cathy Sudlow, your personal life changed a lot. You, you married Charles Warlow. He's one of the UK's leading urologists and stroke researchers. You also had two children. Presumably this meant a career break. Yes, I had two periods of maternity leave. They were both during a period of time that I was working as what's called a clinician scientist. So I had some funding that allowed me not to spend all my time in clinical care delivery, but quite a substantial amount of my time running and managing research Mm. programs, taking on my own PhD students, building up my own team and so on. And during that time, which lasted maybe seven or eight years, uh, that fellowship, because it was spun out because of these periods of maternity leave, yeah, I had two kids and... Mm. uh, probably about six months maternity leave for each of them, one in 2003, Mm. one in 2007. The marrying bit came afterwards, actually. Ah, okay, right, right. I gather also you were asked to do a TV interview right before the birth of your first child, your daughter Lucy. (laughs) Yes, so this was a little diversion from the world of stroke, and I was asked to do an interview And I was really excited by this because I hadn't done anything like that before. And I thought that that would be a really interesting thing to do. But then I just had to remember that the day they'd asked me to do it was about two days before (laughs) my my first child was due to arrive. So I did actually have a scheduled caesarean section. So I did wonder whether I could kind of schedule it in conveniently. But I also had to go on the anti-Iraq war march. So I just, in the end, I had to dispense with the TV interview. There wasn't time to fit it in. (laughs) It didn't really feel terribly appropriate either. Well, throughout these years in Edinburgh, Cathy, you had a relatively normal scientific career in epidemiology, working with relatively normal-sized patient data sets. The stroke study I think you were working on had about 2,500 patients in it, something like that. Yeah, so that study nowadays would be seen as relatively average mm. or smaller size compared with some of the things I've become involved with. So when did that all change then? Well... Round about the end of the 1990s or 2000, just as I was leaving Oxford and starting to re-establish my clinical career alongside research, a new, uh, very large study of population health called UK Biobank was being conceived of and much discussed. And uh, the idea was to recruit half a million people from the general population from across the UK. At that stage, nothing of that sort of size had really been thought about or was thought to be possible. That study interested me and uh, by about 2005 it was being run by a previous colleague of mine. I contacted him and said, look, when you come to be following up these 500,000 individuals, Mm. you're going to need some help from people who understand more what goes on at the clinical coalface of how to interpret those records and pull together the different bits of information Mm. to work out what's what. And I can really help 
with the stroke side of things because that was my area of expertise. So around about the late 2000s, 2007 or so, I started to become involved in advising on UK Biobank. Um, we understand in science that when you're looking at data sets, you know, the larger the sample size, statistically, the more reliable it, it should be. Is bigger always better? No, not always. So it depends on the question. A study like UK Biobank, which starts off from the point of inviting people to take part irrespective of whether they're healthy or not, but largely speaking, they'll be healthy volunteers and then follows them over time, has by design to be very much larger to start with so that enough people will develop any particular condition that for studies of that condition... Uh, you've already got the sample got, size you've in got, there. You've got enough. So you yeah. have to start off with a much larger population right. base. Well, you formally joined UK Biobank as chief scientist in 2011 and one of your main tasks was to do this following up on, on everyone that had taken part, the half a million people across the UK. I mean, how do you approach a task as big as this? It was obvious that the way to follow up half a million people was not to try and see them in clinics. That was would just not have been a scalable way of doing it or a sensible way of doing it. We knew that in the health service and, of course, in the UK, we're lucky enough to have the NHS, which is... A single healthcare provider, albeit with lots of different fragmented organisational components. But we knew that within the main countries of the UK, each country nationally has large collections of data from hospitals and from other systems, sometimes from primary care as well, that tell us about some of the key things that have happened and are happening to people, their diagnoses, the operations they've had, the dates on which those have occurred, their admissions to hospital. So... Tapping into those databases, which are already held and brought together at national level with the consent of the participants in the study, seemed a very sensible way of following people up. So that became one of the key mechanisms that we used and that I was involved in leading that part of the programme. Well, two years after you take on this role of chief scientist at UK Biobank, you, it's 2013 now, you were made full professor at Edinburgh. Did you carry on working with patients as a neurologist during this time? Yes, I did. I cut down my clinical workload then to around about a day a week and carried on like that for at least the next eight or nine years. I just focused it on one particular area to make mm. sure I stayed competent and engaged and did a did a good job whilst doing all the other stuff well, as well. The other, well, it's doing all the other stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm glad I'm sitting down having to read this because I feel exhausted just... <laughs> Just thinking about this, in 2017, Cathy, you became director of the Centre for Medical Informatics at Edinburgh University. Only a year later, you became research director of the Scotland branch of Health Data Research UK. Now, before we get into what you're actually doing there for health data research, um, can I ask how you are managing this all? I mean, you say your, your, your clinical stuff will be reduced to one day a week. You had this chair in neurology at Edinburgh University. You were still chief scientist at UK Biobank. It sounds like multiple full-time jobs. Yeah, so I do have a bit of an issue with acquiring new things to do. and <laughs> Not uh, being able to like, say no? Or <laughs> yeah, no, well, my, yes, I find it difficult to say no because I get excited by so many different things and every time someone asks me to do something, I think, oh, that, I think I could do that and I think I'd be good at it <laughs> and I think it would be really, really interesting. So every now and then I have to look at all the things I'm doing and take stock and think I'm going to have to cut mm. down a bit. So this has happened probably every 10 years or so in my throughout my career, particularly in the last sort of 20 years 
where I've had to take a look and rationalise right. and, and drop a few things uh, and w- focus on a few things. <laughs> Was it difficult also to find time for life outside of your, your work? Well, yes and no. All people in my family and my friends have always you know, been fantastic support and encouraged me to do other things. So as a family, my husband and the kids and friends and many others, the extended family, have done a lot of sailing. Um, I'm very passionate about music. I've somehow always managed to make time for that. And I love sort of indulging in and enjoying the musical and artistic exploits of my two kids and my husband, actually. He's a great artist, too. Let's talk about Health Data Research UK, HDR UK. How did your involvement with the organisation start? So I was lucky enough to be involved from the very early days. There had been um, attempts over a number of years to bring together individuals from across the UK with an interest in using all the health data that's generated within and beyond the NHS that's relevant to health. It was felt, though, that it needed a UK-wide institute. And um, I was in the right place at the right time to lead the Scottish bid. And so I became the director of the Scottish part of Health Data Research UK, Mm. uh, but then very quickly became much more involved One of the main roles I've had in the last two, three years has been to direct a component of Health Data Research UK funded by the British Heart Foundation, the the British Heart Foundation Data Science Centre. We were able to work with the NHS, especially in England, to build capability driven by the needs of the pandemic, actually, as Mm. it happens. Because this happened just before the COVID outbreak. I mean, this uh, Data Science Centre was formed in 2020 big milestone in your career, Cathy, because you were appointed its director. I mean, before we get into what what you found, I assume or maybe hope that by this point you did step down from some of your former positions. Yeah, so towards the end of 2019, I rationalised my duties. So I stopped doing so much stuff in Edinburgh. I stepped down from leading the centre I was directing up there and I gave up my UK Biobank chief scientist role. What was it about the new challenge, the the shift in focus for you that excited you? Well, it was building something from scratch, which is always a fun thing to do. I mean, somewhat daunting, of course, but that was that was one of the main things. And it was also this notion that Health Data Research UK itself was a new institute. And so it was an opportunity to lead a very major component of, of that institute from its very early days. Of course, during the pandemic, we were all, I guess, more willing to want the uh, medical research to tell us what to do, to find vaccines and so on. Were there any practical insights specifically to come out of the Data Science Centre during the pandemic? Yes, a few examples. So by looking at data across the entire population, it's possible to find very rare things that don't affect very many people. But you need a lot of people to start off so that you can find those. So Mm. we were able to demonstrate that some of the rare blood clots that were associated with the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine in those early months, we were able to quantify how big those risks uh, were. We were able to demonstrate that they were occurring more in younger people, that they were extremely rare, that they weren't associated with some of the other vaccine types, for example, the vaccine that, that Pfizer was involved in making, but that really crucially, those risks in the vast majority of people were tiny, really tiny, compared with the massive benefits of vaccination. So always trying to 
quantify and put risks mm. and benefits into context alongside each other. So that was one of many of these population-wide studies mm. we were able to help with. Well, just last year, Cathy, in addition to still running the Data Science Centre, you were given a new role at Health Data Research UK as their overall Chief Scientist and Deputy Director. What changed about your role in the organisation? It's been a sort of it's been a gradual change, really. So the British Heart Foundation were very keen for me to continue to lead the BHF Data Science Centre, but I managed to appoint and bring in a a really talented uh, deputy director. So I've become much more involved, although I already was quite involved, but much more involved in the leadership of the institute broadly. Well, certainly your years of experience working with all these different organisations, it's not surprising at all that you were recently commissioned by the UK government to write a review called Unifying Health Data in the UK. What else would it be called? I mean, it says (laughs) on the tin what's inside it. What is the goal of this review? So the review was um, was commissioned by the Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty and and government's national statistician Ian Diamond. So, but with the kind of buy-in of, of the great and the good around them, this is particularly around mapping out what data is being collected and surfaced and linked together where, and where there are significant barriers to doing that better for beneficial purposes whilst maintaining security and privacy and so on. But it, it it's difficult, and it's difficult because of cultural barriers, to some extent technical barriers, although I think those are overemphasised, and most fundamentally the maintenance of trust, trust of patients and the public and trust of privacy groups and trust in government. So it's been really interesting kind of uh, interface with policy and politics as well as science and healthcare. And for you personally, Cathy, you do seem to be over the past few years taking on more new roles again. Are you still managing to keep everything under control? Uh, just about, yes. <laughs> keep I'm, all those balls up in the air. I'm always busy. Every now and then I have a sort of Churchillian black dog day where I can't believe that anything is possible. And so I, I guess like most people do, I have my sort of up times and my downtimes where I feel that it's all just got too difficult. Um, so I do have to continue to be aware of getting overcommitted and indeed overcommitting the people around me, both my colleagues uh, and my friends and my family. Well, clearly you have more of your career ahead of you and what you may achieve. But looking back on, on what you've done so far, is there anything you can consider what you've been most proud of having achieved in your career? I think... Probably the two things I'm most proud of are the work I did with UK Biobank to build up that resource, which is now used by tens of thousands of scientists all over the world to make discoveries that improve people's lives. And then more recently, the work I've done with Health Data Research UK and particularly with partners in the NHS to really take forward the scale at which we can interrogate data and make discoveries that that are relevant to absolutely everybody. Cathy Sadler, thank you very much for sharing your life scientific. Thank you. For just as long as Hollywood has been Tinseltown, there have been suspicions about what lurks behind the glitz and glamour. And for a while, those suspicions grew into something much bigger and much darker. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I'm Una Chaplin, and from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service, 
This is Hollywood Exiles. It's about a battle for the political soul of America, and the battlefield was Hollywood. Search for Hollywood Exiles wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>